the CSU Relentless Gardener podcast. I am Colorado State University Specialist Linda Langelo, and joining me today is Kareem Garvey, horticulture agent from Denver County. Now let's get to the heart of it, where we explore the horticultural topic of parasites and parasitoids. Hello, Kareem. How are you? I'm good, Linda. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So which parasites are we going to talk about today? I'm glad you asked. Um, so I'd like to focus on the parasitic wasps since they're the most relevant to horticulture and they're just my favorite. Um, but not to be discounted are parasitic flies as well as entomopathogenic nematodes. That's a term you're going to hear a lot today is entomopathogenic. Um, we also rely on quite a few entomopathogenic bacteria fungi and viruses, but like I said, I'm a bug person, so we're going to talk about bugs today, mostly. So so could you stop and, and for those who don't know, give a, a better description of entomopathogenic? Of course, yeah. So entomopathogenic, if you divide up the word into two terms, entomo means, you know, of insects, and pathogenic means spreading like a disease. So the nematodes, uh, bacteria, virus, and fungi are going to spread from insect to insect, or you know maybe arthropod to arthropod if we're dealing with things like mites. Um, they're going to spread like a disease. So you know they're going to spread. We can broadcast them, and they'll get onto a, a few insects initially, and then those insects, through the interactions with their their friends, their cohorts, are going to spread these pathogens to their yeah to their friends. Unfortunately, for unfortunately for them, fortunate for us. <laughs> well, it's it's sort of uh, in the system, if you will. It's a very complex relationship that's going on. Mm -hmm. What kind of parasitism are we talking about today, and what's the difference between a parasite and a parasitoid? Sure. So, as many of you already know, a parasite is an organism that will steal resources from another organism, often feeding on that host's tissues. Um, parasitoids are a subset of parasites. So parasites don't always kill their hosts outright. Um, some even go to great lengths to keep their hosts alive. Um, and so a parasitoid is a subset of parasites that, you know, parasitoids, they must kill their host as part of their normal development. And this distinction is not as, not as important for you gardeners to know, but within the parasitoids, we have two divisions as well. There are the idiobiont parasitoids and the coniobiont parasitoids. So once an idiobiont has parasitized a host, that host development is arrested from that point. It can no longer grow, feed, develop. It often becomes immobile. Um, and in contrast, a coniobiont parasitoid allows their host to grow and mature after parasitiz parasitization. A fun way that I remember it is that idiobionts are idiots for you know messing with their host ability to feed and get bigger, but that's not really a reflection of their evolutionary fitness. Idiobionts can do quite a bit of damage to their hosts and they've been quite successful um, so far. Well, whatever helps you remember the difference between the two of them, I guess. <laughs> mm. Who are these parasites attacking? Uh, everybody. Uh, most insects I can think of have some kind of parasite they have to deal with. There's many generalist parasites who attack, you know, many different kinds of insects, like some fungal pathogens that we use in biocontrol, actually, like Bavaria bassiana and Menoresium anisopliae 
um, which the common names are, I think are green and white muscaridin disease. Um, but these are the biocontrol equivalent of like a broad spectrum insecticide. They can be used, they can attack multiple insect orders. Um, the same goes for some entomopathogenic nematodes. Um, however, it's important to remember that these pathogenic parasites, a lot of them have very poor dispersal ability and they do better in moisture conditions, things we don't really have here in Colorado. Um, so that's good because, you know, if we're applying those generalist uh, biocontrol agents, it's going to reduce the non-targeted effects, but it's also going to reduce their efficacy, um, you know, how long they're going to persist in a system before they just kind of dry up. Oh, sorry. And then um, also the parasitic flies uh, and wasps. Now, these organisms, unlike the ones I just mentioned, these are very, very host specific. Um, this means they can only attack insects in a specific family, sometimes only in a specific genus or species. And that would be the, the biocontrol equivalent of like a narrow spectrum insecticide with little to no risk on those non-target insects. Right, right. How do parasites and parasitoids relate to horticulture? That's a good question. I'm going to talk for a very long time now. <laughs> so biocontrol is the simple answer, but it's much more complex than that. So parasites interact with biocontrol and each other in many ways. Let's start with those parasitic wasps. So parasitic wasps in the superfamily Ichneumonoidea. Um, these wasps have evolved a mutualism with a type of virus called a polydinovirus, or PDV for short. So there's many different types of PDVs and each is associated with its own wasp within this taxonomic group. Um, and the cool thing about them is that these viruses replicate in special cells in the female wasp's ovaries. They're called calyx cells. And these, these viruses restrict themselves just to the calyx cells. They do not attack any other wasp, wasp cell. Um, when the wasp mother finds an insect host and injects her eggs into it, she also injects these PDVs and these PDVs get to work attacking the host immune system, making that, you know, insect host, whether it's a caterpillar or, you know, some kind of stink bug, um, they they basically weaken that host's immune system so that the wasp larva can feed uninterrupted. And the wasps are so reliant on these PDVs that the host immune system can kill or actually will kill the wasp larva in the absence of its associated PDV. And this is because, you know, insects, they have immune systems just like us, and they can resist the wasp larva by itself but it's overwhelmed by this simultaneous attack by these two invaders. Um, Entomopathogenic nematodes do something similar. Uh, there's two genera of these EP, I'm gonna just for short, instead of entomopathogenic nematodes, EPNs. So these EPNs in two genera, Steinernema and Heterobdides, they have a mutualistic relationship with bacteria in the genera Xenorhabdis and Photorhabdis. So once these nematodes enter an insect host, they essentially poop out these bacteria um, and then the bacteria get to work attacking the insect host, making it weaker so the nematodes can do their things, very similar to the PDVs. Um, so those are the ways that parasites help us in horticulture, but it gets deeper than that. They can actually hurt us in horticulture as well. Um, and I'm not talking about, you know, things that are plant parasitic. So even those wasps and those viruses can sometimes hurt us. I read a study about uh, one of those parasitic wasps that had a PDV, and it does something interesting when it infects its host, the corn earworm, Helicoverpa zea. Um, so this wasp's PDV, it actually manipulates the host caterpillar's physiology so that it would not be detected by the plant's immune system. Let me elaborate. So caterpillars have saliva, there's caterpillar spit, and they secrete it onto plants. And many plants use this spit or components of the spit to determine that they're being fed on 
and then they launch an, an, an immune response. Um, so they start producing, they start upregulating genes that are associated with the production of toxic compounds to these herbivores. So the wasp mom, she wants the best for her kids. And since they're inside of the caterpillar, the best for her kids is now the best for the caterpillar, in the short term at least, before they kill it. Um, so the wasp PDVs, what they do is they inhibit the production of a certain compound in that caterpillar spit. It's called glucose oxidase. And without this compound, the plant doesn't know that it's being fed on, so it doesn't mount as much of an immune response. And then the caterpillar can feed more, put on more weight, and that extra weight means more food for the wasp larva, the wasp babies. So just a very, very intricate interaction. I would have never thought that that would be occurring. I don't even know how they discovered that unless you're specifically looking for it. Um, another way that parasitism can hurt us in horticulture is through hyperparasitism. So what that term means is that um, some wa parasitic wasps will attack other parasitic wasps, undermining our biocontrol efforts. This can be, and this basically just means they're parasites of parasites, and it can be obligate or facultative. So obligate means that these wasps are hyperparasites as part of their normal life cycle. Um, and facultative means they can do regular parasitism, but they'll do this hyperparasitism under certain conditions, like if their host is already taken by another parasite, um, so in large-scale biocontrol operations where we're releasing multiple parasitic wasps, it's important to know this so that we know, you know how our parasites are going to interact with each other so that we can avoid that kind of antagonism. If you're just a backyard gardener, um, you probably don't need to worry about this at all. And then the last kind of parasitic behavior I want to mention, although it's not really relevant to horticulture, I just think it's really cool, is what I call phoretic behavior. Um, so some parasitic wasps, they have this behavior where they will find a host and just kind of climb onto it. Let me give you a specific example, actually. There's a parasitic wasp of called trichogramma of a mantis. And what it does is it finds a mantis and it, it just rides on it. Um, if it's a male mantis, it waits for that male to mate with a female and then it transfers over. And then once that female mantis you know, mates and, and lays her eggs, the wasp, I don't know if you know about mantis egg sacs, they're kind of, they're look kind of hard and, and, you know, once they're laid, but they're actually really gooey when they're initially laid. So the wasp hops off the female while she's laying her egg mass. She goes into that gooey egg mass and lays her eggs and then jumps back on the, on the mantis for the next egg sac. And to make matter, to add insult to injury, um, she will actually, She's hiding beneath the mantis's wings and she'll make bites into the into its abdomen and drink its hemolymph as like a, you know, a, a meal on the go. Um, so that's not really relevant to horticulture, but it's just there's just so many really complicated interactions within, you know, of parasites with their hosts, parasites with each other, with the environment. It's yeah, it's fascinating. And it, it sounds like it's a very flexible system where all these things are built in. You know, mm -hmm. like you, you have a. Uh, your plan A and then you have your plan B. If, you know, one thing doesn't happen, then, then they can switch to the next possibility. So I, I know as we go through this change in our climate, how does that affect the systems that they've set up? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. Um, so and just to go back to what you mentioned earlier about how, you know, they're very flexible. Um, so insects, you know, they like we have favorite foods, parasites have favorite hosts. Um, so they have certain hosts that will parasitize more than the others. And um, so there's a couple ways in which, you know, climate change is affecting uh, parasitism and bowel control in general. 
Uh, one is through climate shifting. You know, the ranges of certain insects are becoming expanded or or reduced. Um, and then also, you know, we're constantly introducing new insects to the region, whether that's accidentally or purposefully. So one really nuanced effect of biocontrol or parasites that we may not really in, you know, think of is that let's say we release some insect for a control of another insect. Um, and that insect also gets parasitized. You know, it has parasites. Um, basically, an introduced insect that is becoming parasitized by other insects can throw off the um, the I don't want to call it the, the you know the natural system of so you already have parasites that are already doing their thing. Now you have extra competition for parasites. So let's say you have a parasitic wasp that attacks insect A and you introduce insect B. Now it's attacking insect A and B. And so that nuance effect is that you know now A is going to be a little more successful because it's not being attacked by its host as much, or maybe. It's worse for that insect because now, you know, the parasitic wasp has increased its population because it has now two insects to attack. Um, and so, yeah, we just, you know, there are a lot of these nuanced, uh, you know, trophic cascades, I call them, where you have, you know, this kind of, yeah, this knockdown effect, knockup effect throughout the food web. Um, and just one more thing I want to mention about, you know, this, um, you know, when insects are introduced to new hosts. So, like I said, they have favorite foods. So we have um, what we call a factitious host. Some parasitic wasps, um, they, you know, prefer to parasitize, let's say, insect C, but when they don't have insect C, they will use D or B or G, um, and that may, you know, that can have some more subtle effects as well. Maybe that those 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 other insect hosts, D, B, and G, are not the optimal environment for their babies to mature, but it's all they have, and so the wasp can still persist, but maybe it's producing young that are of uh, lower fitness quality in the end. So in essence, they're totally non-target. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, because they they've run out of their preferred host. Exactly. Yeah. When we do um, you know, before we're gonna release any kind of biocontrol agent into the wild, you know, at least well not me, but you know, the government, like usually the Department of Ag will do rigorous what we call host specificity testing. They'll take that wasp they're gonna release or that fly or whatever parasite. And they're going to expose it in a lab in conditions um, to a bunch of other insects that we don't want it attacking that are present in our system. To, we're going to see, you know, is it going to attack our native insects? Um, and so this kind of testing will result in a, quite a few what we call false positives, because if you're in a lab and let's say you're the wasp and all they give you is some, you know, native insect that you don't really want to use, but it's all you have, you'll use it. And that's what we call the factitious host. So that'll, you know, and, but in the wild, that probably wouldn't happen because if you have access to your preferred host, you're not going to use this factitious host. I say this just to kind of bolster people's confidence in biocontrol because people are often concerned of, um, you know, there's going to be a lot of non-target impacts. We're going to have another situation like, um, you know, like the small Indian mongoose or one of these other, you know, animals that has been has gone out of control. But you know, in the lab, we're being very rigorous, and if anything. Um, Whenever we get those false positives, even if it's using that insect as a host factitiously, you know, as a non-preference that wouldn't happen in the wild in the presence of its regular host, that insect cannot be used, even if, you know, it's like an artifact of the experimental environment. How long do those, let's say, lab trials go on? Is it years or? Yeah, years. Like, I mean, uh, at least in Hawaii, where I just came from, where they have a, there's a very long history of biocontrol, long history of failures and successes. It can be 10 years before they release uh, a biocontrol agent there, just because of how, I mean, that's maybe a, a special case because they are very sensitive. Um, not, I wouldn't say not very sensitive, but, you know, they they have been given reason 
to be very concerned about the release of these agents because so many have gone so wrong and they have, you know, an island system is a very delicate ecosystem. Um, yeah, maybe here on the mainland, I'm not sure of the specifics, but I would say not that long, maybe like, you know, three to five years, maybe seven years. It all depends on, you know, the agent itself um, and then also the pests that you're, you're dealing with and also the, the um, native insects that could be potentially uh, non-target hosts. Right, right. And then probably even after that, who knows, something unexpected can come up. What do they, yeah. what do, they do in that instance? if they've released it and something unexpected happens? You know, I'm not sure. I know with like insecticides, they have these recurring every 10 years, they reassess the, um, you know, the impacts of them. I'm not sure with biocontrol agents. Um, I would think that, you know, there is some kind of commission that would look at, you know, if, if the, you know, climate change is interacting with this agent and it's having some kind of long-term effect. Um, you know, I'm not sure though. I do know of like other organisms like it's much easier to see, like, let's example, look of a tree, like the long-term effects, how they can, you know, even after initial introduction, you're not going to see any impacts. But long-term, you can see some impacts, like when, you know, the, the leaf litter is affecting the soil chemistry over time. But yeah, with insects, I'll look into that. I'm not sure. I would hope, though, that, you know, someone is checking how things are going, you know, after a couple of years. Right, right. And, and they have an abundance of ca caution anyway, so... You wouldn't think that that would happen a lot, but you know, with with the way things are, with such an unbalanced environment now, and the swings in climate change that are happening, you know, we can say, oh yeah, our snowiest months were, but now things are things are just shifting at a far more rapid pace, and. That's why I asked that question. It's just a curiosity. But yeah, if you could find out and and let us know in a future podcast, that would be great. Yeah. One last thing. Um, I mean, thankfully, well, actually, it's, you know, thankfully and unthankfully, a lot of parasitic wasps that we release, um, they're so small and they have like really, you know, poor wings. They don't really disperse that far from where we initially released them. A lot of these wasps, actually, we have to really struggle to get them to do their job. We have to release tons of them um multiple times throughout the season to get them to do any sort of control so those wasps you know a lot of the parasitic wasps i would say don't have the ability to be a huge problem in the system um because they just can't you know establish or disperse but there are some you know like that that's like the egg parasitoids like trichogramma trichogramma that i mentioned um but there are other wasps you know not, not to discount the other wasps that you know can establish and be a huge problem i'm sorry continue that's all right that's all right uh so for the the average homeowner that does gardening, how can they help these parasites and parasitoids in their landscapes? Conservation biocontrol. Um, so I mentioned this last time, but the best thing that gardeners can do is draw on these natural populations of parasites. Um, so plant flowers, which you know many of you are probably already doing this without even knowing it. Planting flowers will attract all kinds of beneficial insects. Like to, they like to feed on the nectar and pollen, and while they're there, they're they're looking for you know hosts for their babies. Um, but in, going one step further, it's good to plant flowers that have different flower phenologies. What I mean, like different flower forms. So if you have, you know, let's say you have lots of blanket flower with that kind of aster-shaped flower, try to also plant something with an umbel-shaped flower, like milkweed um, or dill, fennel. Also, maybe something with a, a columnar-shaped flower, like like a gay feather. Um, just like us, insects have their favorite fruits. They may prefer certain flower forms to the others. And also, these having a diversity of flowers is going to ensure that you have um, a more balanced nutrition because different flower, flowers have different 
nutritional content. Um, another thing you can do is make sure that you know you're staggering your bloom time so that you have flowers. Some flowers have peak nectar flow earlier in the day, some later in the afternoon. Having flowers, you know, of staggering bloom times or different nectar flows is going to ensure that there's a continual supply of floral resources in your garden throughout the day that's going to keep those beneficial insects coming. You know, they're going to stick around. Um, and let's see. And then last time we talked about, you know, all those things you can do. I won't go into, you know, a deep, uh, deep into conservation bio control. But the last thing I want to stress is that, you know, if you're doing conservation bio control, um, you want to try and reduce your insecticide use. Because you know insecticides may be more necessary in commercial operations, but us backyard gardeners can usually quell our pest problems by attracting these beneficial insects and then also doing cultural mechanical control. Um, but you know, like you don't want to create this great habitat for all your beneficial insects and then create a population sink by spraying them with with chemicals. Um, they can hurt our little hep helpers. And if you're doing conservation biocontrol correctly, and if you're getting those beneficials. They should be controlling your pests for you and you shouldn't need to use, you shouldn't have as much of a demand for insecticides. That's that's right. That's good point. Very good point. I think that, you know, a recurring theme in in your topic in sustainable gardenings is diversity. You know, the, mm -hmm. the more diverse you can have in your landscape, the better off the ecosystem will be. And with so much interrupted space that we talk about all the time with, with uh, development and disturbing the, the native land that's left, diversity in our space will help, you know, mitigate what's happening in the bigger picture. Exactly. I don't want to get too kumbaya on you guys, but the gar master gardeners would appreciate this, um, you know. Mother Nature has been doing her thing for billions of years. Um, it's a very intricately evolved system. I mean, think of all those really crazy interactions I just mentioned. It took a long time for that to come about. And so she has her own means of pest control. And so I see it as, you know, almost like hubris of humans to come into the system. You know, we've, I mean, we've been here for, I don't know how many thousands of years, but in, in comparison to how long the earth has been around, um, it's a speck. And so we've come in, you know, in our little time here and been like, you know what, we know better than the system that has been, you know, basically regulating itself for millions to billions of years. Um, and we basically, we pay for that hubris. You know, when we apply insecticides, we get insecticide resistance, we, get, we pollute our waterways. Um, so yeah, just relying on the controls that have, been, that have been in place and have been working for a very long time, I think is a much more prudent option than trying to come into the system and try to manipulate it as if, you know, as if it's our some kind of toy. Right, right. Well, you know, you and I don't necessarily see the bigger picture all the time. And we can't know the bigger picture. I mean, Mother Nature has the bigger picture, right? Mm -hmm. And so I have one last question. Uh, how did you ever get interested in this topic? I've been a bug nerd since I was like a little kid. I think the the event that spurred me was it was either Ted caterpillars or saddleback caterpillar that I had an allergic reaction to when I was a little kid. Um, <laughs> saddleback. I, I, I'm now that I'm thinking back, I hope it wasn't a saddleback, but if you know, because that that one has a painful sting. It's native to the East Coast, or maybe it's throughout the U.S. But um, yeah, I just I had an allergic reaction. And I was like, wow, something so small could cause me so much problems and i'm sure that everyone is thinking the same thing japanese beetle for example 
Um, and yeah, from then on, it was just, you know, I would just catch, I would catch Japanese beetles, put them in jars and just watch them as a kid. Um, I got a pet tarantula around like when I was 14 and some roaches and I kept them in a uh, Tupperware beneath my bed. My mom came and found them while she was vacuuming. She was very un- unhappy. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, we're all, I think Carl Sagan said it, we're all born scientists and then society just kind of like beats it out of you. Thankfully, you and I, we've retained our, our childlike wonder for nature. Um, right. I have to thank my mother who, you know, even though she was mortified by those roaches and tarantula, she still encouraged my passion. And, you know, that's the job of us in extension is to, you know, not just encourage adults to learn about this stuff, but also, you know, try to get kids excited about horticulture. For me, I'm, you know, biased. I'm trying to create a legion of of entomology minions for myself. That, uh, that's, that's important. That's important to to pass on that information, no matter what, no matter what. It's It's valuable information. And then, you know, if you don't, uh what happens you have to start over mm-hmm. anyway i just want to share saddleback caterpillar i'm very familiar with that oh, i got stung by it i was pruning a viburnum back east in pennsylvania and had no idea it was on the underside of the leaf and man that is an unforgettable experience <laughs> yeah. very colorful little nasty caterpillar <laughs> yeah it wants you to know don't mess with me yeah and never again and the the references that 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 marking on the back looks like a saddle, so that's why they call it saddleback. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, thank you for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure, Linda. Thanks. I'm always it's always a pleasure to talk about bugs anytime. <laughs> good, good. And a thank you to the audience for listening. Tune in next time when we get to the heart of the matter on another horticultural topic.